Thank you, worship team, and thank you, church, for being here this morning and uh, turning with me to the Gospel of John as we continue to walk through this year the writings of our brother, John the Apostle. I hope that it is a blessing to you guys uh, as it has been to me getting to prepare for this. I'm looking forward to walking through all of it, but this morning we come to chapter 2. And chapter 2 is one of those texts that, for lack of a better way of putting it, is sometimes hard for us to wrap our heads around. Sometimes hard for us to wrap our heads around what exactly John is trying to communicate here in chapter 2. The reason, I think, is because we don't understand the topic that he's looking at. What we just did was we sang some songs, and for a lot of times, and and just speaking colloquially, we'll say, we just worshiped, all right? So when you think about worship, what comes to mind for most of us is probably going to be singing some songs, standing up, listening to the band, and, and, and singing some songs that we know, singing some songs that we don't know, but nonetheless, there's this feeling that comes from taking a time and setting it aside, and then playing some music and singing some songs. That's not exactly what worship is. That is a venue in which worship can take place, but it's not worship, not in its holistic sense. The reason why John chapter 2 is hard for us is because when we look at it, what we're seeing is John trying to show us this is what worship is is. This is what worship is. And if we try to restrict worship to just being songs that we sing on Sunday morning or driving in the car or whatever, then we're not going to understand that that's what he's talking about. But before we think that, oh, we're just picking on 21st century Christian County residents, understand that the Jews in John's day, understand that the Jews that Jesus is going to, that he's showing up and ministering to, understand they didn't understand worship either. Okay? So this is not unique to the 21st century. It's not unique to us. Everywhere, it seems like, when we look at history, there's this misunderstanding of what worship is. Because in the first century, what the Jews would do is they had a much more comprehensive view of what worship was. Worship was going to entail not just what happened on their Sabbath, not just what happened on Saturday, but also what happened through the week. And if you go back to Leviticus and you start reading through the the law back there, You understand that for the Jewish mind, almost every aspect of their life was touched by regulations regarding their, what? Relationship with God. Regulations regarding, another way of putting it, their worship. And so in the midst of that kind of setting, you have Jesus who shows up, and you have John who begins to teach and and, and tell everybody, hold on a second, you may have missed something. So as we look at this text, I want you to understand the point of worship is not to check boxes like the first century Jews would check boxes and then do whatever you want with the rest of it. The point of worship is not to do what we like to do, which is restricted to Sunday morning time when we're singing some songs. The point of worship is to recognize it's everything. All of life is worship. Every single moment of every single day is a moment, is a time, is a place of worship. Now, once we begin to get that, then we can make sense of what we find in John chapter 2. At this point, you're thinking, well, can we just get to John chapter 2? What's this actually say? 
Well, I set it up like this because I want you to understand when we read this, the first thing that comes to your mind is not going to be worship. When you read John chapter two, the first thing that comes to mind is not worship. Look at this. John chapter two, verse one. On the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee. Now, I have made clear before my views on weddings. I really like marriage. I love marriage. I celebrate marriage. Not a big fan of weddings. Not a big fan of weddings. But here we have a wedding, and guess who shows up? Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. All right, so Jesus is at the wedding. His disciples are at the wedding. His mom is at the wedding. And I'm telling you what's going on here is not just a wedding. And Jesus is about to show us that. When the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him they don't have any wine. Now, leaving aside the problems that come to our Baptist minds with that statement, leaving that aside, understand he shows up at the wedding, and in those days, first century Palestine, if you were to uh, throw a party which is what a wedding was, when, if you were to have an occasion like this and a celebration like this, it was expected. It was very much tied to your good name that you had plenty of food, you had plenty to drink, and you had plenty of fun. All right? there, there was not supposed to be any running out of anything. And if you ran out of something in the midst of the celebration, that became a mark of shame against your house. So it's not like a shrug and roll on like, oh, we're, we're out of hors d'oeuvres. No, this is a big deal. This is affecting the, the name of the family who's throwing this party. In an honor-shame culture, this is a big deal. So Jesus' mother says they don't have any wine. Look at Jesus' response. What has this concern of yours to do with me, woman? Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Now, Jesus did not disrespect his mother there, just so we're clear. The em emphasis that I put on that word may not have been the same emphasis that Jesus put on that word. But nonetheless, Jesus is saying, who cares? Not my concern. This is not something I'm worried about. Or is he? In saying, this is not my concern, he's highlighting something for them. Right? He's highlighting something for them. This is a concern, yes, but that's not what I'm here for. Except he then proceeds to act. He then proceeds to demonstrate something really important. His mom didn't listen to him. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now, six stone jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. Then he said, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. Now that sets the stage, and John does a masterful job with this. Right? They, they've run out of wine, and this is an emergency in the first century. This is, this is something that affects a family's honor, affects their name in the community, their standing amongst their peers. This is a big deal. But John highlights something in particular. He says there, there are six stone jars sitting there that were used for the Jewish rites of purification. Now, we don't have to go into all the backstory, but understand, if you went back to Leviticus, you would see that there was something special about stone jars. 
Clay jars could become unclean, and things inside of clay jars could be considered unclean depending on various circumstances. But a stone jar, a stone jar was set aside. It was something that not only could not be made unclean itself, but in fact made everything within it clean. And so essentially, this was what the Jewish households of that day would do because there were ritual washings that the Jews would do before a meal in entering the house at various steps along the way. Some of it was laid down in the law. Some of it was part of the traditions. But these stone jars are sitting there and they're there for purification because these stone jars themselves not only can't be made unclean, but themselves make clean whatever is inside of them. And those are the jars that Jesus says, fill those with water. Fill those with water. Now go ahead and draw some out and take some to the head waiter. Well, now that's important. Most people didn't drink water in those days because water was full of stuff that would make you sick. That's one of the primary reasons why there's so much talk about wine there is because to have that alcohol content would kill the bugs that could potentially kill you. But now this water has been put inside these stone jars. It is ritually clean. But it's more than just that. It's more than just ritually clean. Look at what happens. So they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water, parentheses here, after it had become wine, he didn't know where it came from. Although the servants who had drawn, from the, who had drawn the water knew, he called the groom and told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first, then... After people are drunk, the inferior. But you have kept the fine wine until now. So, so this guy who is essentially the, the master of ceremonies, he's the one who's in charge of making sure everything goes well. The groom's family has provided everything for this feast, but they didn't have enough wine. And now all of a sudden he tastes this, what had just been water. And he says, oh, that's good stuff. So much so that he interrupts the groom in the midst of the celebration of his wedding and says, hey, don't you know you're supposed to bring the good stuff out first, not last? And this is the first miracle that John records Jesus doing. Why? What concern is it of the Messiah? What concern is it of the king regarding whether or not the festivities have enough wine? At this point, the head waiter's kind of alluding to this. At this point, there are people in the crowd who can't discern the difference. Whose concern is this? Jesus says, it's not mine, but it is because he takes action. He does something about it. John says, this is the first miracle that Jesus performs. Why? Needs to be the question resonating in our minds. But look, look where he goes next. So Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. After this, he went down to Capernaum together with his mother, his brothers, and his disciples. And they stayed there only a few days. The Jewish Passover was near. So Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found people selling oxen, sheep, and doves, and he also found the money changers sitting there. Now this, John, this makes sense. This is clearly about worship because here you have the Messiah, the king who is concerned with the ruling of God's people. You have the Messiah going to the capital, 
going to the place where the king always sits, and not just going there where the king sits, but going to the place where God's people worship him. And when he gets there, you expect then this is what he's about. This whole wedding business, interesting fact, John, but probably unrelated. Certainly a fascinating story, but really probably not what's supposed to be in view here. Except John ties the two together seemingly intentionally. Because when Jesus, whose concern is with the worship of God's people, whose concern is with the ruling of God's people, whose concern is to be the one who redeems God's people, his first act is there in the humbleness of a home, and then his second act is to go and to scope out what's happening in the public worship of God's people. He goes up to Jerusalem, and he goes into the temple, and he sees all these things. Verse 15, after making a whip out of cords, he drove everyone out of the temple with their sheep and oxen. He also poured out the money changers' coins and overturned the tables, and he told those who were selling doves, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. Jesus, at the wedding gets involved in something that doesn't seem like a very Messiah-y kind of thing to get involved with. And then at the temple, there in the midst of the hustle and the bustle and all of the religious establishment approved traditions and practices, why? Why does he get involved in something that the Messiah doesn't need to be involved with? And why does he get involved now in not putting a stamp of approval on the practices of God's people? He's trying to show us something about worship. And his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews replied to him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Therefore, the Jews said, this temple took 46 years to build and you'll raise it in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the statement Jesus had made. Jesus is involved in something that doesn't look very Messiah-y. He comes along in the very place where the people of God are supposed to be worshiping him. He says, this is not the right way to do it. And then he says, wait, I am the object. I am the place for your worship. What we have to understand, what the Jews in the first century needed to understand is that worship is not something that can be confined to particular moments or particular places in our lives. What you and I need to grasp here about Jesus's ministry, about John's depiction of his messiahship, what we need to understand is that it impacts every single moment of our lives. We cannot set aside Sunday morning and be like, all right, this is the point at which Christ is king and then roll out into Monday like, okay, now I can do whatever I want. We cannot pick and choose from the pieces of our lives that are going to be allowed to be entailed in our worship. As a matter of fact, everything we do is worship. I really like Paul David Tripp in his book, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands. He says this about worship. 
Human beings, by their very nature, are worshipers. Worship is not something we do, it defines who we are. You cannot divide human beings into those who worship and those who don't. Everybody worships, it's just a matter of what or whom we serve. Woman, I have nothing to do with this. And then he turns around and has everything to do with that. Priests, I want nothing to do with this. And then he turns around and fixes it. And then he steps forward and he says, because I am what is meant to be the object, the place of your worship. Church, if we begin to understand exactly what this means, then we'll begin to understand it is no longer a choice for us. It's no longer a choice for us to worship on Sunday morning and then do something else on Monday. It's no longer a choice for us to decide which aspects of our life are going to be submitted to the king. Jesus is saying every aspect of life has to do with me. I am the kind of Messiah who has to do with every moment of your life life. You'll meet people. You might be the people who think, oh, I'm not religious. Oh, I don't do that. I don't worship, right? I, I, I don't sing praise. I don't go to church. I don't like organized religion. Prefer my religion disorganized. Thank you very much. Right? I, I, don't, I don't do that kind of stuff, but, but if, if Paul David Tripp is correct, and if John is correct, then that's not an option. The question is not so much, will we worship or won't we worship? The question is rather, what or who are we worshiping? Worship is not something that's set aside for a particular venue. Everywhere is a worship venue. Now, you'll hear this misused a lot. Oh, I don't go to church. I worship God in my deer stand. Yeah, you do. And you worship yourself. And you worship hunting. And you worship your own preferences. Right? Oh, I don't need to go to church to worship. I can worship in my car. Yeah, you can. These two are not exclusive. But you can also in your car make some funny gestures to drivers who cut you off. Because what is foremost in your mind at that point is no longer who is God, but rather who am I? What is foremost in your mind in that deer stand is what do I like? Not what is my interest in God. What we need to understand from John chapter two is everywhere is a worship venue from a home where there's a wedding party taking place to the temple in Jerusalem, Jesus is showing us it is all worship. There is no place that is opposed or excluded from the experience of worship. And so if this venue becomes the place where that thing happens for you, then you need to broaden your horizons. And if you assume that worship is better suited to the deer stand than to these comfortable chairs with heating and air conditioning, then you need to reframe your focus. The question is not where you are, but what's going on in you. 
Because if everywhere can be a worship venue, and I would submit to you it is according to the word, then you are never not worshiping. Now, double negative there. Everybody track with that, right? Y'all know a double negative makes a positive, right? So when I say you are never not worshiping, what I mean is you are always worshiping. The question is what? The question is who? When you come in here on a Sunday morning, it is possible to sing songs in such a way that your heart is engaged in worship, that your mind is reflecting on who God is and what he has done, and that your heart is stirred with feelings of wonder and awe at the incredible fact that this God loves you. And you are then motivated to action, to love those who are sitting next to you, to engage with them in their lives, to find out what their hurts are, to find out where it is that they need the assurance of grace, to find out what it is that they need wisdom for in their life, and to go out into your community and to engage with your neighbors and your coworkers and your family and your friends in such a way that points to the reality, God is worth everything to me. Or you can come in here and you can have the heart of a cynic. And you can say, I don't like this instrument. I don't like those lights. I don't like that person. I don't like this temperature. I don't like this thing or that thing or the other thing. And that thing's going wrong and this thing's going wrong. And then you can go out to your car and you can get mad at the other drivers and you can go into your workplace and you can complain about the fact that nobody respects you and nobody gives you the due that's recognized or doesn't recognize your worth. And you could go to your home and you can complain about your kids and complain about your wife and complain about your in-laws. And you can do all of those things and still be a worshiper. You're just not worshiping God. You're just not recognizing the worth of the one who is. Instead, you're holding up what? You. You are never not worshiping. The question is, are you worshiping the God who is? We worship the God who is. Or are you worshiping yourself? And oftentimes we'll disguise it. We'll dress it up, right? Because we all know we've sat in church long enough. We know we're not supposed to be all about us. And so, so we can over-spiritualize anything if we try hard enough. And so we'll say, no, 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 I'm not concerned for me, right? I'm concerned for this thing or that thing or that or the, and really when you get down to it, you're worshiping the God who is or you're worshiping a false God. And that God is usually yourself. This is the diagnostic question that comes in when we read about Jesus driving the money changers out of the temple, it ought to startle us. Because you know why the money changers were there in the temple? And John doesn't talk about this right here, but, but they're set up in the court of the Gentiles. And Mark talks about this. They're, they're set up in the court of the Gentiles. So, so basically what has happened is the people of God, of God have prioritized their own comfort over the access of those outside of the faith to Yahweh. They are prioritizing their own preferences above what it is that God has said, this is the place where the nations can come and see me. Do we understand that? Do we get that today that in worship, what we're supposed to be doing is inviting those who do not know the hope of the gospel in, not 
making it convenient for us? Jesus turns out the livestock. He said, yeah, it's a lot easier for you to buy your sacrifice in the court of the Gentiles, but that's not what that's for. It's a lot easier for you to be able to exchange your Roman coins for temple coins right here. It's more convenient, but that's not what it's for. Israel, you're worshiping yourselves. Yahweh is not a gift meant to be hoarded and consumed by his followers. Yahweh is a gift that is meant to be shared and others invited in. Worship is not for the convenience of the worshiper, not for the comfort of the worshiper. Worship is about the real God. And anytime it's about something else, it's still worship. It's just the wrong object of worship. So a wedding in Cana can be worship. And these Jewish jars of purification can be used to make the point, Jesus is the kind of Messiah who's concerned with every aspect of life. And and, and then you can go to the temple and you can see this is worship. So a wedding or a temple, a backyard barbecue or a Sunday school class, a day on the factory line, a day at your desk at school, all of it is worship. You are never not worshiping. The question is, what are you valuing? What are you prioritizing? In that house in Cana, they were prioritizing their name. They were prioritizing, what are the neighbors going to think? In the temple, they were prioritizing comfort and convenience. Worship is not ultimately about any of those things. And when it becomes about those things, then it's false worship. Worship is about recognizing the supreme value. It comes, it, our English word worship comes from the, the, the old English. It was worth-ship. Recognizing the value of that which you are focused on. And so the value that God has, which is supreme. In order to get to that place where our worship is pure, where our worship is right, we have to do two things. We have to ascribe ultimate value to the God of the Bible. And then we have to align our thinking and our feeling and our actions with that valuation. In order to rightly worship, we have to ascribe the right value to God, which is all of it. And then we have to bring our thinking and our feeling and our actions in line with it. Worship includes what you think, what you feel, and what you do. So everywhere is a worship venue, your car, the deer stand, your workplace, your home, right here in the sanctuary, everywhere is a worship venue, right? And everywhere you are, you are always worshiping. And if you're going to do that right, you have to not just affect your mind, you have to affect your heart. You have to not just affect your heart, but you have to affect your actions. Worship involves everything, everywhere, every when, everything, are tied up in our worship. We have to think rightly about the value of God. We have to think rightly about the fact that this is the one who created everything that we can see and everything that we can't see. As John said in his introduction, there is nothing that was created that wasn't created by him. 
everything he's made. And in the midst of that making of everything, he made you and I. And you and I, left to our own devices, decided that we weren't really keen on him. We were really keen on ourselves. If you look back at Genesis chapter 3, you see this, right? They had one rule, one rule in the garden. Don't eat from that tree. One rule, and what'd they do? They saw that it was pleasing to the eye, was good for food, and it could make you wise. So it was good for me to look at, it was good for me to taste, and it was good for my mental development. The key there is it was all about me. Eve chose herself over Yahweh. And we do the exact same thing. Right? We, we make this value estimation and we think to ourselves, I know that God says he's worth more, but I actually think I'm probably worth more. And we feel in our hearts that that is the case. And therefore, our actions line up with it. But if we flip that, if we once catch sight of the fact that God is infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy, if once we grasp that, then our thinking begins to shift. And we recognize, hey, I want to do this thing. Hey, this thing would be more convenient for me if it went this way. But God has said he doesn't want that. God has said that this instead is the better thing. And because God is worth all of this and because God is the one who is on the throne and I am not, then I will conform my thinking to his reality. And having done that, the incredible thing starts to happen. Our feelings begin to align with that. Having meditated on the worth of our God, having meditated on his supreme value, what happens is our hearts begin to line up with that. There, is, there are times when I do not feel like singing. There are times when my heart is not exulting in the glory of our creator. But it doesn't take too long if I will shift my focus from what's going on in my life, shift my focus from what's happening around me, and shift my eyes again to who God is and what he has done, thinking that way. It's amazing how our hearts will follow suit. And once our minds are convinced and once our hearts are feeling rightly, it is inevitable that our actions will follow. This is why when we get to 1 John later on this year, we look at 1 John, what we're going to see is that John fully grasps this. That once our eyes have been fixed on Christ, once our hearts have been wholly captivated by the wonder that is his mercy and his grace, our lives will change. And if our lives have not changed, it means that our hearts have not been captivated and our minds have not been convinced of these truths. And John ties our actions to our worship time and time again. We need to understand this. Worship is thinking, the intentional consideration of who God is and what he has done. Worship is feeling, the recognition that if this is true and yet he loves me, how in the world can this be? Wonder and awe, amazement. And then worship is acting in accordance with our thoughts and with our feelings. Jesus goes in and he says, this isn't right. This is not worship as it should be. 
Jesus says, everybody thinks this doesn't concern the Messiah, but I'm here to tell you it does. Every aspect of our life is wrapped up in this. As a matter of fact, we could say, who or what you worship is the single most important thing about you. Who or what you worship is the single most important thing about you. Now, this is the point at which I can't do the work that's needed at this point. All I can tell you is if you were to look at the week behind you, if you were to look at your calendar, if you were to look at your checkbook, if you were to look at any measure of what it is that matters to you, what you gave your time to, what you gave your money to, what you gave your focus, what you gave your attention to, would that reveal a heart that is God-oriented or a heart that is self-oriented? Would that reveal a heart that is captivated and worshiping the greatest reality, the triune God revealed to us in Christ Jesus, the Father who loves us and wants us to be his children, who sent his Son to dwell among us, and that all who believe in him should have the right to be called the children of God, the spirit who fills us, who indwells us, who empowers us, who sends us, would your week behind reveal that reality being ultimate in your mind, that concern being foremost in your heart, that being the motivating factor for everything that you've done, or would that analysis reveals something different. If you're like me, it reveals something like this, right? Depends on the moment right now, but right now we tend to vacillate between those two, right? If if you're a Christ follower, then you know the worth of God, You know the worth of Christ. You've seen firsthand, you've tasted the wonder of God's mercy. But you forget really easily. Or maybe I'm just talking about myself. We have a tendency to bounce back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. But what? We shouldn't be. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. If we find that our worship is bouncing back and forth between this glory that is God and this false idol that is the self, the fault is not with him. The fault is with us. It's not that his valuation has changed. It's that our Recognition, our remembrance has shifted. The Jews had had countless stories in their history of God showing up and doing marvelous things in their midst. And there's money changers and livestock sellers right there in the temple. They stood in the presence of the Messiah himself. And the foremost concern was, what are the neighbors going to think? How are we going to be exempt from that? 
how are we not going to have the same vacillating worship? How are we not going to have the same confused and inconsistent lives? Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can fix your worship. Now, here's the problem. Because we've so closely tied worship to what happens on Sunday morning, we think, well, if only we had a better preacher, that would fix our worship. If only we had a better worship leader, that would fix our worship. If only we had a projector that didn't quit 15 minutes before the service, that would fix our worship. No. Jesus is the only one who can fix your worship. So, when he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the statement that Jesus had made. While he was in Jerusalem during the Passover festival, many believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing. Jesus, however, would not entrust himself to them since he knew them all. And because he did not need anyone to testify about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Jesus says, look, you think you've fixed it. You think because you saw me do something incredible, you think that now it's right. I know you're going to bounce back and forth. I know you're going to forget tomorrow. And Jesus didn't trust himself because he knew what was in them. But it didn't keep him from doing what he needed to do either. Jesus walks through his ministry. He does miracles. He teaches. He shows the people this new reality. Teacher, our ancestors said we should worship on this mountain. Your ancestors said we should worship on that mountain. Jesus said, I'm telling you the truth. There's coming a day when you will worship neither on this mountain or that mountain, but those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. Jesus says to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, unless you're born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Jesus is recognizing that what's in us can't be fixed by us. We can have a momentary awareness of the glory of God, but to have a wholehearted change, to have a complete transformation, what's needed is for God himself to come down inside of us and to completely renovate things to rip out all the mess and put something new in its place. The Old Testament prophets talked about the fact that what was needed was for the heart of stone to be plucked out of our chests, for a heart of flesh to be put in. Israel had the law outside of themselves, but the prophets said, when the Messiah comes, when the new kingdom is inaugurated, what's going to happen is that God is going to write the law on the tables of your heart it's no longer going to be external to you. It's going to be inside of you. My question to you this morning, church, is has God done that in you? Has God changed your heart? Are you showing up this morning with a heart of worship, heart of wonder at who he is and what he has done, an amazement that he would love you in such a way? Are you showing up with the heart of a cynic, heart of a critic, complaining all the while? What's going on in you is something only Jesus can fix. 
It's got to come from inside. It's got to be transformation. And this is the most important and the most vital thing. Recognize this. Ultimately, worship is not just something we do. James Smith, in his book, You Are What You Love, said this. Worship works from the top down. In worship, we don't just show, come to show God our devotion and give him our praise. We are called to worship because in this encounter, God remakes and molds us top down. Worship is the arena in which God recalibrates our hearts, reforms our desires, and rehabituates our loves. Check this. Worship isn't just something we do. It's where God does something to us. Worship is the heart of discipleship because it is the gymnasium in which God retrains our hearts. If you find in you a heart that is directed at you and not at him, the solution is him. If you find in you a heart that is continually bouncing back and forth and you're tired, you want off of this pendulum, the solution is him. The solution is Christ. The solution is recognizing once and for all that he is Lord and you are not. Coming to him, submitting to him, worshiping him. And in worship, not only do we lift our eyes to him, but he begins to change our hearts. Let's pray.